Well, hi folks, welcome back. I have another exciting interview to share with you today. This time with Drew Mosier in Enneagram 3, uh, the author of the recent book, The Enneagram of Discernment, and a professor at Taylor University. Drew's also the co-host of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, and we were able to talk in early October of 2020, and it was just a thoroughly enjoyable conversation, and I'm excited to share it with you. Drew brings a lot of wisdom and just a kind of centering, grounding depth to this conversation. We talk about his book, of course, and with all the Enneagram books that I read, um, I kind of nerded out uh, early on about some of the choices he made in how he wrote this book, how he set it up, and why he made those choices. So you'll hear that early on, and we get into Drew's theory about orientation to time, which I think is fascinating and pretty unique. And we talk about how that plays into our decision-making and uh, some great practices for cultivating wiser decision-making and room for discernment in our lives. And of course, as part of this Enneagram and Creativity series, we talk about how threeness has shown up for Drew in his creative process, more generally and specifically in writing this book. And it was just really illustrative, I think, of the process of integration we can experience uh, when we really commit ourselves to the creative process. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Uh, don't forget to check out the show notes to see how to follow Drew online, uh, to purchase his new book, The Enneagram of Discernment, or to check out Fathoms, Drew's Enneagram podcast, uh, the second season of which releases on November 5th. So that'll be next week from the time of release. And one last note, my audio is going to sound a little different than you're used to in this interview. I tried a simpler setup to try to be lower maintenance, and while that might have been the case on the front end, it required a lot more work on the back end. So I'm sorry it's not quite up to par. Drew sounds great, and, and that's what's most important. So um, just, a, just a little note before we jump in. But without further ado, here is my conversation with Drew Mosher. All right. Uh, welcome, Drew, to the 100 Days of Enneagram Project. Uh, I'm glad you're here and, and that we get to do this today. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. It's good to be with you and uh, glad we could make this work. As, as am I. I'm realizing I'm, I'm often informal to a fault. So is, is Drew okay. okay or would Dr. Moser be better? I would much prefer Drew, please. Okay. So. Great. great. Thank well, you for that's... asking, but Drew, Drew would be great. Okay, perfect. Um, so that's what we'll go with. Uh, so why don't you just start by introducing yourself to, uh, to our listeners, just a little bit about who you are and, and what you would like us to know about what you do. Okay, sure. Yeah, my name is Drew Mosier, and I a, live in Indiana, where I, uh, along with my wife, raise our five children, ranging in ages from five to 15 in a small town in rural Indiana, about halfway between Indianapolis and Fort Wayne. And I work at a college as a professor and administrator and really enjoy uh, yeah, just getting to work with college students. It's a little less fun in an age of COVID, but it's still a good gig overall. And a lot of the work that I do is Enneagram related or Enneagram infused. So I uh, try to do that as much as I can and uh, wrote a book, which I guess we'll talk about, I assume, uh, called The Enneagram okay. of Discernment. And then, co there it, oh, there it is. I, I love the, the tabs as well. Uh, and then co-host a podcast called Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast with a couple of other wise friends, Seth Creekmore and Seth Abram. Awesome. Thanks. And that's a, a good listen for, for all of you. Definitely check that podcast out. And just to center ourselves in the reality that we're in, kind of um, how are you doing generally? And if, if you want to connect that to your Enneagram um, type, feel free to do so. But 
just seems yeah. like an important question right now. It How is an you? important question. Yeah, not not one to gloss over, certainly, because um, this has gone on long enough. We can't, right? Right. Um, exactly. We can't just pretend. Oh, this is just a a passing moment. Um, so yeah, I'm doing. I think well overall. It, you know, it's been a mixed bag for sure. I'm I'm very fortunate um, to be healthy and employed. My kids are able to go to school with restrictions, and so that's gone well so far. I'm able to go to work with restrictions, which has gone well enough so far. Um, I think one of the hardest parts about this is, um, you know, I haven't been able to travel and actually interact and engage with people in person. So releasing a book in in the middle of a pandemic uh, is... uh, not for the faint of heart <laughs> and not, uh, not necessarily something I'd recommend, but you know, uh, it, at some point, um, you know, you release it. There's no convenient time to release a book. On, on yeah. Better book. than not releasing it. <laughs> right. Right. So that, that's been hard. I think it would have been, uh, great to be traveling and, and just engaging with, um, audiences and friends and colleagues on these things that I really care about. So I do lament that um, often, yeah. but overall, uh, I can't really complain <laughs> compared to what many others are uh, enduring and suffering right now. Right, right. Yeah, it's so hard to make space for what is difficult and and mm-hmm. uh, validly so while uh, yeah. acknowledging um, the reality for so many people. I mean, comparative suffering is not helpful, but at the same time, I mean can't not acknowledge that yeah i agree i do thanks for sharing yeah. that and and kind of giving us an idea of where you're you're coming from today and um I, there's so much in this book i mean it's a it's a um it's a thorough exploration of of the program yeah. And so let's dive in, I, I okay. think. And and I there's kind of a, a particular section and and idea that I really want to dive into, but okay. um, but to to get there, um, I want to start at the beginning because I, I there were a few things from the very beginning that kind of caught my attention. So I okay. I I love reading. Um, academic writers uh, writing for a, a broader audience because I okay. think generally they're still leaning, leaning on that academic structure of telling us from the beginning exactly what to expect in terms of um, structure and content. So we, we know what's coming and, and you mm. do that um, in your introduction uh, and your, your author's note, um, which I really appreciate. That might be a nerdy thing, but... Um, but well, thank uh, you. I, yeah. I'm glad you appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I can always tell like if, if an academic has written the book um, yeah. um, in a good way, in a, in a good way. And so I have a question about the forward and we'll go back to that, but you made a couple of decisions clear from, from the author's note from um, mm-hmm. page, you know, pr- prior to one page, Roman numeral, whatever yeah. it is. Sure. Um, and so one of those is that you, uh, you chose not to capitalize the word Enneagram, which may seem like a small detail, but that is um, diverging from a lot of people. I liked that choice, but I wonder yeah. if you might say a few words about kind of what went into that decision. Yeah, well, you know, I find it interesting that many writers and teachers of the Enneagram will talk about the Enneagram's kind of sorted history and origins and how it really is an open source tool, all of which I agree with, but then they capitalize it as if there is one definitive Enneagram. Right. And uh, I think that's a mistake because I really think uh, the power and the insight and the wisdom of studying the Enneagram is by understanding that it is a framework of nine and the Enneagram of personality is just one expression of that framework of nine. Right. So if, if it's, um, yeah, if we reduce it to the Enneagram of personality, then that's something I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to unpack a little bit in the book. Um, it's not the sole focus, but if we reduce it to that, then I think we're losing a lot. Um, I, I think we, 
we miss a lot. And even a lot of the Enneagram of personality that's uh, so wildly popular today is really so, a kind of a simplistic combination of um, the modern Enneagrams. You know, if we think about the passions and the virtues and the holy ideas and uh, yeah. the fixations or even, you know, the, the traps and, you know, I could go on and on. It's really just this kind of combination of those. And so by not capitalizing it, I think it opens us up to be able to see other expressions of a framework of nine that can be really helpful. I love that. I love that. And I've kind of awkwardly um, gone back and forth between capitalization and, and not in my own um, writing, but this kind of is freeing me to kind of forego <laughs> the capital. So it seems yeah. like a small thing, but I, I, I don't think it is small. And I, and I think you've explained that um, really well there. And, and the other thing in the author's note that you just, you just made plain from the beginning, which I appreciated was your, uh, your approach to citation, um, yeah. which is another thing that, you know, you say there's kind of two approaches. The first approach kind of fails to properly recognize citation for fear of not being seen as having original work. Right. Um, and then the, the second approach to cite kind of whenever and wherever possible, um, which might imply that lack of originality, but, but you say, um, and you connect this again to your, your training as a scholar. Um, yeah. but, but your inclination, and this is quoting from the book, is to build upon the good work of others. Um, it, that citations and references convey honor and respect, meant to communicate that others' work is important enough to remain in the conversation. Yeah. And, and I, I just, I, I just so appreciated that and being forthright about that from from the very beginning. Yeah. Well. It I don't know that I can get away from that as a trained kind of scholar, even though this is not an academic text. I, I don't know how to do good writing without sourcing good material. I also I also think it's really important given, you know, our current kind of Enneagram phase, uh, you know, where um, it's so much of it is kind of passed on through memes and Instagram stories and these sorts of things that often... Um, aren't connected to good Enneagram work that's been done before. Yeah. That's not to say that there can't be new insights gleaned from Enneagram work. In fact, I think I try to contribute to the conversation in some new ways uh, in the book. But if all I do is that and not connect it to the work that's been done before, I think that's a mistake. Um, but uh, the, the weird thing is, because the Enneagram is open source, it, it, it can be really territorial. And so I, I yeah. had a number of people say, hey, I think you do need to write this book and get these ideas out there, but be careful. <laughs> because um, <laughs> if you spend some time in the Enneagram community, you will hear some war stories of people who have really had to fight for their own work to be recognized or have maybe felt like their work has been co-opted by others without proper attribution. And so uh, I really, I, I, that's why I did the author's note, because I want to say, here's how I'm approaching this. And I want to give credit where credit is due. So hopefully I've done that. Yeah. No, I think you have. And I, I, I love it. And, and that ends up kind of, you know, the, the notes um, with those references at the end of each chapter ends up functioning kind of as a resources list for people who do yeah. want to to go further and to to look uh further into something that that compelled their attention so it's just i i just think that um it's a good way to go and a and a great way to explain that choice yeah um, so so one more thing about the foundation before we kind mm -hmm. of um dive in you had to make a difficult or what i assume was a difficult decision um or a complex decision at the very least um yeah. before releasing this book which actually kind of pushed the release date back um in that you uh you you changed the forward at the last minute uh chris yeah. Hewitt originally wrote the forward for this book which I think was probably a pretty big deal. So I, I appreciate and respect the decision that you made. And I wondered if we might talk just a little bit about what went into that and why you did what you did. Yeah, no, I, I certainly can talk about it. And it was a really hard decision um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, 
And so Chris had been uh, one of my Enneagram teachers and had been encouraging me, you know, to get my ideas out there and been supportive of the book project. So it seemed like a natural thing to do to ask him to write the forward because he, uh, you know, loomed so large in the Enneagram community and was well known and uh, had encountered my ideas before me, me even asking him to write the book. And so I had, um, uh, so I'd asked him to do it. He, he had agreed. He had written the for, a forward for it. And um, as publishers do, there's a, a short run of advanced copies that get printed to send out to influencers, quote unquote, you know, who you want yeah. to encounter the book for the first time. And so, so I had received those um, in bulk. I had kind of crafted these boxes that looked really great and had these other kind of free things in them um, and just this curated package that I wanted people just to kind of have and be impressed by, right? Yeah. So I, I get these mailed out and then the very next day is when the news broke. Um, oh, so literally while, while they're in route to these uh, 55 or 60 people that were to receive it, you know, the news breaks um, uh, I believe it was a medium post um, yes. collectively written by a number of women uh, who, uh, who were, you know, recounting uh, abuse in, yeah. uh, in the past. So obviously we, my publisher and I, we had to make a quick decision. Okay. What do we do with this? Um, and, you know, it was evident to me right away that there was just no way we could continue on the path we were on yeah. with the book um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, uh, at the very minimum, I just didn't, there was no way to learn, to learn any more of all that had occurred, you know, in the time that, you know, the 48 hours that all these books were going to arrive. And um, so it, the allegations were numerous enough and serious enough that we had to take them seriously. So right. we had to make the decision to pull uh, the book back from uh, its original launch date, which I, I believe was in mid June. And I had to reach out to everyone that was about to receive the book and just say, Hey, just please uh, hold it back. Um, we're trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, it, I think the only path forward was to uh, push the release date back and uh, and do so with a new forward. So um, uh, one of my, and, and so I went to my kind of pool of endorsers for the book because I wanted someone that had already read it. And, um, mm -hmm. and uh, Chuck DeGroat, who has uh, a therapist and just released, a, had just released a book on narcissism that used a lot of Enneagram. Uh, content uh, graciously agreed at the 11th hour to write the forward. So, so certainly not how you script out a book launch, but at the same sure. time, um, nothing about this book launch uh, could have been scripted. And um, while it certainly was difficult to push it back and to kind of reboot all that momentum that we had had, that seemed to be the, the only way to go given uh, what had occurred. Yeah, thanks for that window kind of into the the process and and I think you know not only making the decision to to switch the forward author but then to choose Chuck DeGroat with that particular area of expertise I think was a um seemed like a thoughtful and um responsible choice there. I mean I it wasn't just some other random person. It was someone specifically who can speak if not directly in the forward but just by the choice um to the reality of the abuse that was um yeah. at hand and um you know i i i actually and it's not like we've uh known each other in any depth or uh or for very long but but i you know we had met at that point and we had mm -hmm. um done the panel um with the taylor students and i was looking forward to the book coming out and i thought of you at some point in that process like oh god like what does he do now yeah. um and um i think that 
given the timeline of it, like you, you could have made a different decision and you, and you could have still possibly benefited from that name recognition in terms of promotion and sales and, and whatnot, depending on how it all went down, you wouldn't have known at that point. And so I, I think the integrity to choose what you did um, as a woman and as someone who has um, experienced um, narcissistic, probably abusive leadership in church and nonprofit settings. I just, I, I respect and appreciate that. Decision. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, you, you put so much time and energy and sweat into a book project and you want it to have literally a long shelf life. <laughs> and, um, and I just, I tried to project out, Hey, I don't know how all of this is going to unfold. It was impossible. You know, when, when that medium post was posted to know how all of this would unfold because it was so early, it was so fresh. And, uh, I thought I, I, there's, there's just no way I could let the book continue as it was in its current time frame, Uh, and cause I didn't know what type of shelf life it would have if I did. Um, mm -hmm. because, uh, I, what I don't want is for something to go out that, uh, isn't fully vetted and, um, doesn't have, you know, the integrity that I want it to have because I put so much time and energy into it. And so, um, I, it did, it really did seem like the, the only, uh, path forward given the circumstances and the timing to do that. Yeah. Well, thanks again for, yeah. for the insight into that process. So let's, uh, without further ado, kind of a jump into um, a particular section of this book. I, I, you know, there's no way to to do the whole thing justice in in a um, concise amount of time. But what was particularly interesting. Um, to me, and and I think particularly relevant to our current situation, and, and we'll get there, um, was just your take on orientation to time. Mm, um, sure. And and this is in your chapter four, the practice triad, past, present, and, and future. And uh, people who are listening will have some reference for orientation to time. I've done um, a couple of, mm -hmm. of segments on that already, and they can go back and, and refresh on the basics um, if they want. But but you add um, something new to me. I mean, the idea makes perfect sense when it's sketched out, but you, you explicitly name and explore this kind of stacking of the orientations to time um, with that dominant perspective, a supporting perspective, and then a a neglected or uh, repressed perspective of time. I think that's yeah. original. I think that's very helpful. So uh, how did you kind of come to that understanding? Yeah, um, no, happy to talk about that. So uh, I was introduced to the orientation to time concept within the Enneagram uh, from a workshop that I attended with Suzanne Stabile, where she mentioned it um, and uh, mentioned that she received it from Hurley and Donson. Um, and if Enneagram nerds out there will recognize those names, maybe not a brand new kind of enthusiasts to the Enneagram, but they are um, formative influences in my own kind of Enneagram work and in the book. And so in one of their books, they talk about how each uh, stance or Hornavian group or social style of the Enneagram has a preferred orientation to time, past, present, or future. And I thought that was fascinating. And I kept looking through their other material to try to find out more. And it could exist, but I didn't find it. Yeah. Um, and so that, and uh, coupled with this idea uh, that the Enneagram is perpetually triadic and that the real um, benefit to growth and transformation for the Enneagram is exploring the law of three within it, I thought there has to be more here. And so started really uh, playing around with this idea of past, present, and future as it relates to these uh, stances and came up with this stacking, um, which is not all that different than the, the intelligence center work that so many Enneagram teachers do, where the, the stances have a, a, a repressed or distorted intelligence center 
Uh, or if we look at the triads of the Enneagram, you know, the gut, heart, and they, they have a, a preferred or leading center of intelligence. So I thought, what, what if we could do something similar with time? And I think we can. And so, so that's what I did. I started, um, uh, you know, kind of experimenting and tinkering with the time perspectives and then uh, wrote a, an article for the Enneagram Monthly really as a way, it's kind of my test balloon <laughs> to see if uh, I would be denounced as a heretic or if it would be accepted um, as an interesting kind of addition to this work. And so um, uh, it, it seems like most people uh, thought it was helpful. And so I kind of built it into this book as a really core kind of component of of what I'm trying to do in the book. Yeah, well, and it... it um it is congruent also with kind of the instinctual subtype stacking the kind of dominant mm -hmm. and supporting and then that that third that i mean it only makes sense that that would extend into time orientation um, right and just haven't seen anyone else make it as explicit as you have and i think as practical as you have because you you've explored um kind of each of those uh, stances and and given some direction on what we we need to realize and um, and and focus on to kind of balance things out and you know one of the things that that I'm particularly interested in right now is kind of how well decision making in general and how our enneagram types influence our decision making yeah uh, which I think is is obviously a part of um, this uh, broader, maybe deeper concept of, of discernment. So yeah. um, how do you see these orientations to time um, influencing our, our decision-making and discernment? Yeah. So I think uh, a, a basic premise of the book is that our personality type helps and hinders our decision-making. And if we remain in, you know, what... I've heard Tom Condon say it, but I'm sure there are others. If we remain in the trance of our type, right, yeah. then we will continue to fall into the same habitual patterns of decision-making. But with uh, greater self-awareness and observation, I think we can grow and develop. And one of those key ways that we can do that is through how we steward time. Um, I find it fascinating that we all live in this kind of uh, chronological time, you know, and in Western culture, it's, it's very finite. We're always running out of it. We never have enough of it. Uh, at the same time, I think our personality tends to push us um, towards certain orientations to the time and away from others. So an example would be in the assertive stance, which I'm in as a type three, we tend to be so future focused, always looking towards what's next, for threes, it's on the achievement or the to-do list. Uh, and so we're present uh, enough to get the job done so we can move on to what's next. What often gets lost is the past because yeah. it's ancient history. It's, it's a drag. Um, if we dig deeper, it confronts us uh, with our failures and we have to work through those, you know, and, and that's difficult work. But if we don't learn from the past, as we know, we're doomed to repeat it. And so that's why threes, we can kind of get stuck in the same ruts of saying yes to too many things or saying yes to things for the wrong reasons or kind of winging it or kind of faking it till we make it. Uh, but the past can help us get out of those cycles. Um, and so I think uh, one of the things that can be really helpful is intentional reflections on the past, what I call sacred delay, where we actually slow down, look back, and um, consider the life that we've lived so that we can, our future can be healthier and uh, not so kind of stuck in our type structure. That'd be one example. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I initially in this time when we were, things were kind of shutting down and it was, it was, clear that there was going to be kind of uncertainty and really an inability to plan with so many unknown factors this year, um, particularly with COVID at first. You know, my initial concern um, was for the assertive stance um, for yeah. my friends. And I was like, 
this is going to be really difficult because, you know, obviously there are things that are difficult for me in the withdrawing stance and we can um, mm -hmm. explore that maybe um, as, uh, as well as the dependent, but this, this kind of depriving um, you of, of really being able to plan effectively or to mm -hmm. really conceptualize a future with so many um, unknowns in the present, um, I imagine could be really distressing. There's also an opportunity yeah. here to have the space to do this reflection and integrate the past, but that's so yeah. not not natural and, and maybe even harder in a stressful time. Does that yeah. resonate at all? Oh, absolutely. I think um, it the the pandemic has forced the assertive types the, you know the three sevens and eights into a sort of detox from their hyper planning tendencies yeah and uh that is it's really painful and it probably uh has unearthed quite a few coping mechanisms for us um at the same time uh like i even at the very beginning lamented i wasn't able to go travel <laughs> you yeah. know um so i you know as someone who wrote this stuff, it's, it's really hard for me to not, because normally in a fall, I would have dates on the calendar of places I'd be going to um, speak and consult and teach and those sorts of things. And that hasn't um, been able to happen. Uh, at the same time, uh, the removal of so much from our calendars provides the perfect opportunity for what I prescribe, which is sacred delay, where yeah. we can look back. And the, it, has, it has been hard. And, and the assertive types that I talk to will admit, uh, most of them anyway, will admit it has been hard. They will also often say, but it has been good. <laughs> mm. um, and now that's, that's not to minimize the suffering, right? Of course. Sure. Um, but to learn how to be without all those things that we do or want to do is a really valuable lesson for us. So my, my hope is that whatever the other side of this looks like, um, we uh, can maybe uh, bring with us these habits and practices of being able to slow down and just be and actually reflect so that we don't just immediately get back into on the treadmill, so to speak, of life and just sprint. Could we briefly kind of um, explain the the sacred vision and the sacred yeah. presence that for the other two stances? Yeah. So for the assertive types, you know, I recommend uh, cultivating practices and habits of sacred delay. Um, for the dependent types, uh, they tend to be very present focused, um, but it's often on the tyranny of the urgent. So whatever is right in front of them, and you know, obviously for different reasons and different motivations. Um, and I believe they tend to be supported by the past um, so that the past kind of reinforces this need. I have to tend to what's right in front of me before I can move on. And what often gets lost in the shuffle is a good and hopeful vision for the future. So looking ahead uh, without fear, trepidation, or kind of anxious anticipation feels luxurious to dependent types. So I recommend they cultivate a sacred vision where they actually cultivate habits and practices to look ahead and plan and dream and scheme and strategize uh, in ways that aren't necessarily restrained by what is right in front of them. Um, and then should I go into the withdrawn types or do you want yeah, to? Yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. So for the withdrawn types, the fours, fives, and nines, uh, yeah, they tend to be past focused. Um, and uh, supported by the future. So these types can often kind of vacillate or bounce between the past and the future. And when they do, they often kind of leapfrog the present. Mm. Um, now, they can be very busy. They can be very occupied. But it's often, those are often distractions from the very thing that they should be doing or should be focused on or attended to into the pre in the presence. So I recommend that they cultivate habits and practices of sacred presence where they bring their full selves, uh, you know, minds, hearts, and bodies to the thing that matters most in the here and now. 
uh, and which then helps them not just physically take up space often um, in their environments, but actually allows them to show up fully there. I don't, I don't know why this has been the case necessarily, but for me during this year, I mean, I keep coming back to, to reflecting on these orientations to time. We, we've done a couple of um, meetups here. Uh, I've been working on a, an essay in which I reference your, um, your journal article, but if, if it's any indication of the pace at which I'm working, the first line of that was, I can't believe it's already July. Um, <laughs> and here we no, are I get in October. It. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I found initially in all this that just the, the acuteness of the, the threat at hand and the stress and everything, it kind of, um, kind of zeroed my focus into to the present. Now, both my stress and security numbers are dependent numbers. And I, I, yeah. I, I wonder, you know, if some of that orientation to time is part of what we access from those resource points. Now, the, f the further along we get, the longer we've been in it. It's very clear mm -hmm. to me how the orientation to the past and uh, focusing on the, even just rewatching um, television shows or, or rereading yeah. books that have art, you know, this, this default, this anchor to the familiar mm -hmm. or to where I've come from is, um, is certainly a, a comforting coping device yeah. uh, for me. And, and it's interesting to hear, you know, other people's illustrations of some parallel of that uh, for them during during this time, um, in which we have so many decisions to make. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, an onslaught of decisions with not always complete information, you know, in these in these right. unfolding situations. Yeah, or or even that we have plenty of information that alone isn't going to cultivate wise decision making, right? Yes. You know, I, I think we have. Um, untold amounts of information literally at our thumb tips. Um, that has not made us, I would argue, any wiser than generations <laughs> before us, right? Fair, and so, yeah. yeah, more information isn't necessarily the issue. Um, I think we need to be, uh, I would argue, more intentional about receiving the gift of discernment and cultivating the practice of it, which requires us to do some things differently than we have been in kind of the patterns of our type, you know, and, and for each type, there's a, there's a different probably set of practices and emphases, uh, but we all have decisions to make all the time. And so this is something that's not just for certain types who we may stereotype as in, more indecisive. Mm. This is for all of us. Um, right. Yeah. Cause I remember when this, when we first shut down, you know, back last spring, I went into house improvement mode. Mm. I just, I got so many projects done around the house. I painted things, I built things, I fixed things. Uh, and then, you know, you kind of run out of projects and realize, oh, we're not out of this yet. <laughs> you know, right. that was nice to be that productive. At the same time, um, this is an invitation to something else. Right. It's not just to get more done differently on a different list, but to actually uh, work on some other things. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good question for all of us to ask, you know, what, what is the invitation for me in this? What, what am I being invited into? Yeah. Yeah. And because that's another kind of core principle in the book is that, uh, that the Enneagram helps us identify lots of barriers and hindrances and impediments to growth. And so, uh, and this is what's critical. It, it should identify how we have tried to bypass or short, shortcut those throughout our lives to our own detriment. And when we start to really honestly take a look at those barriers, I think we can welcome them and see them as invitations to growth, to deeper growth and transformation. And I think that's the real power of the Enneagram. Uh, I think, uh, anything else is really 
snake oil, <laughs> you know, that, Hey, here's how you just, uh, not get into the, or here's how you just shortcut or hack your way through life. That's re- not really how it works. I think it's yeah. really by, by, uh, discernment really, uh, it's root means to see beneath and through. Um, it, it's not a workaround. It's not a shortcut. I love that. And, and I, I think, um, another process that, that can be a, a tool and a, an avenue through which to see beneath and through, is that what you said? Be- beneath. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, it, at least for me, and I think it has the potential for, for anyone it, it is the creative process. This, this process yeah. of, um, both discovery of and expression of, you know, who we are and how we see the world and, and what's important and, and what action is ours to, to participate in. And um, obviously, you know, you've written a book, you've, you've written and, and made other things as well. So um, yeah. how do you, uh, well, first, like, do you identify as a creative person i i believe that yeah. to be human is to be creative but people have different yes. perspectives on that and then you know how do you see your enneagram type your threeness mm. influencing your creativity both in terms of the content uh that you create and in the process that you experience yeah uh it's a wonderful set of questions because it this has been a long journey to even be able to answer what I'm about to answer. Um, because, uh, you know, I grew up in a family environment in which uh, very loving, very supportive. I have one brother who's very different from me. He was, uh, I was the athlete. Uh, he was the artist. Okay. And so it's, you know, obviously in your developmental years, it's very easy to kind of develop a binary, right. Right. Around, um, those two things. And so it, it's taken a long time for me to even consider myself to be creative when in fact, uh, with some sacred delay, if, if I practice what I'm preaching, I can look back and see that a lot of my productivity, which I would offer as a gift from being a three, the ability to produce things is creative, right? It's creative yeah. in how, how I went about it. It's creative in how I, uh, even told others about it. It's a creative endeavor as opposed to just a task that's completed moving on. So one of the things that I've had to really work on in order to honor and cultivate my own creativity is to practice celebration. Mm. I think it's very easy for me to do something even meaningful, worthwhile, helpful, significant. And then as soon as I press send on it, already move towards the next thing on the list. Yeah. Without when, and so actually thinking that that celebration is, uh, it's not wasteful. It's actually, it honors the work that has been done and it helps me see the creative ways in which this thing came to life, whatever it is. Uh, the other thing that it does is it helps me get out of the threes trap, which is efficiency. Right. And um, if my only metric for life is efficiency, my creativity is going to wane because creativity uh, really uh, needs to be evaluated by a whole different set of metrics than whether or not something was efficient. Yeah, it needs space through, and time. Yeah, it needs space and time and it, and it needs revision, mm-hmm. which uh, I've had to really learn to do. You know, I, I, as someone who can image craft, shapeshift, I can wing things and it, they generally work out well for me. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are as beautiful as they should be. Mm, right. Yeah. So, uh, beautiful as the project deserves. Right. And so, um, with this book, especially compared to my other projects that I've been a part of in the past, I took so much more time to ask others and invite others into the process uh, to give me feedback, which was, inc- I, if I'm being honest, was incredibly vulnerable, yeah. you know, and scary to do so, uh, which seems silly because I was going to send it out into the world anyway, right? Yeah, but uh, but but something about it in kind of 
you know, um, in the midst of the process of drafting and editing and all that felt, felt kind of scary. Yeah. Um, but, uh, what that, what that did though, is it really caused me to confront as a three, my own kind of tendency to image craft okay. <laughs> versus perhaps a different sort of image crafting, which is creativity, right? If I'm creating something, if I'm producing something, that is a form of crafting, right? Absolutely, yeah. In crafting an image of something that I want to send out into the world, uh, as opposed to uh, what type of image am I crafting? So whether or not you're impressed by me or um, think I'm valuable or worthy or all these other things that, you know, that threes really care about. Um, the motivation matters, uh, I've learned. And uh, so even this book project, um, uh, I knew I wanted to write a book. Um, I knew it was cr creative. Um, it got rejected by a lot of publishers. Mm. Um, and so I had to come to terms with, am I, is this something I'm willing to write? Uh, even if a big name quote unquote publisher doesn't pick it up. Yeah. Uh, and I said, yes, because I, it's, it's something that's worth doing <laughs> as opposed to saying, Hey, I, I'm writing a book with this publisher. Isn't that impressive? Right. right. Um, and it allowed me this, this phrase that we use a lot, but it, it truly did afford me creative freedom hmm. to write what I truly wanted to write and not maybe conform to what would be most marketable or kind of most sexy in the market, whatever that is, you know? Yeah. Man, I'm just, I'm hearing so much like from our entire conversation about this process, just so much of just the work of integration and growth mm -hmm. of threeness that has, you've been given the opportunity to experience in this whole process. Yeah. Uh, it, this has been, I, I talk about this a lot when I teach that the Enneagram is beautiful and it's brutal. Yeah. Right. And it really, I think it really does need to be both, <laughs> you know, we need to be compassionate towards ourselves and honor what is inherently good and uh, just wonderful about who we are. And we also need to be honest about those shadow parts of ourselves that are really difficult and hard to even talk about and even confront. Um, doing both of those is where the real growth and transformation lies. Right. Um, and it's not to say I don't, I don't at all do it perfectly. And there's a lot, you know, that I'm, I'm still working on. Uh, but the Enneagram has helped me in so many ways as a three, uh, really kind of dig into my inner life in ways that I otherwise I'm confident I wouldn't have. Um, or if I had, I would have hit some places close to or at rock bottom that I would rather avoid. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, just to pull one thing from what you, you said, I love that you acknowledged that, that creativity or creating something is, um, is crafting a specific, uh, image. And I don't remember who said this, uh, off the top of my head, but, um, it was something that really kind of convicted me as a four a few years back was that, you know, in each act of creativity, we're revealing something, but we're concealing something as well. Oh, yeah. Because we're choosing what we reveal, which uh, inherently uh, conceals uh, what we're not revealing, what we're not choosing to reveal. And so... Um, right. Maybe more naturally as a four thinking, oh, like, this is who I am. I'm sharing who I, well, yeah, but I'm, I am sharing the parts of who I am that I want you to see and the others are being concealed. Yeah. Um, so it's not, yeah. it's not inherently authentic or vulnerable. Um, there's still mm -hmm. that crafting going into it. Uh, so that's something yeah. I, I remember. Oh, I think that's, that's profound and in itself is a process of discernment. What do I put out there? What do I mm. withhold? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and testing both of those, <laughs> that which is public and that which I can keep to myself. I, those are valuable things to evaluate and, and um, consider. Yeah. Well, I, um, I want to honor your time and, um, this is just, this has been wonderful. I could talk to you for, 
for hours more um and likewise yeah maybe down the road we can continue our conversation but you know for now just where can people find you online follow your work uh etc yeah so i'm uh fairly easy to find on social media uh at drew Mosier. my last name is spelled m-o-s-e-r uh, most of my Enneagram stuff, though, uh, occurs on um, my Instagram handle at Enneagrammers. So you can find me there. Also, if you just uh, search for Fathoms and Enneagram podcast on any of the podcasting platforms, um, you'll find me uh, talking a fair bit there. <laughs> um, and <laughs> and uh, also, you can find the book, Enneagram and Discernment, on um, the publisher's website, which is fallscitypress.com. Oh, or if Amazon's your thing, you can find it there as well and a few other places online. So great. And I'll I'll share some of those links with people for uh for efficiency. And Fathoms is working on season two, right? Y'all are in the process right now? Yes. Yeah, we're currently recording season two. Uh really excited about it. Um finished season one, which was a just a great experience. We learned a lot and uh, um, I'm really excited about what we have in store for season two. It's going to be really good. So stay tuned. That should, uh, about the time that, uh, I think this releases is about the time season two will launch. So perfect. Perfect. Well, hopefully that'll funnel people yeah. your way. Um, is there anything I didn't ask you or anything that you, you want to say as we close? Oh, uh, I would just, uh, I would just say that uh, don't miss the opportunity to live with a sense of awareness um, and discernment throughout your day. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from Annie Dillard, mm. who says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And so I think the way in which we live the life that we want to live is by uh, living days and hours and minutes in the ways that in which we want to live. And so it requires discernment in the, just the very mundane and everyday ordinary things. Um, and not just waiting for these, uh, extraordinary, you know, proverbial forks in the road. I love it. Thank you so much, Drew. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah.